I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, the podcast where we are stripping down the walls of a house that already exists and redesigning our version of it with shiplap. And if you hate that, get your house redesigned somewhere else or just read the house yourself. If you want to hear what we have to say, we're about to say it. So I'm happy you're here. What else should we say this week? I think we have a few Chicago tickets left, a few Minneapolis tickets left. We are going there sooner than later, quick as a wink. So please, 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 if you have any interest, get tickets now. They tend to sell out. And then I feel like day of, we always get DMs from people being like, wait, I wanted to go. And I'm like, I don't know how I could have helped you more. We are coming to Chicago, Minneapolis, Philly, D.C., Denver, San Francisco, Nashville, and Atlanta. I am so excited for the shows. We have such a fun time at these live shows. We are going to have special live show only merch. So if that's not enough of a reason to get you out of your house, I don't know what is. But if you want regular special merch, all of our merch is honestly pretty special. We have restocked the Very Smart Worm sweatshirts and the Y2K Worm tanks. They are, I guess, my favorite items I think we've ever made. I also love the Ugliest Girl in the World Attack sweatshirts, but that's for a very special attack. (laughs) Claire, Mm -hmm. if you were to write a memoir about your life, how would you describe last week's chapter? I think I've already said this on the Patreon, but I've been oofing a lot. I've been woofing. Like, oof. Yeah, I don't know when I developed this quirk or this tick where anytime I like bump something or slip a little, I go, oof. Are you from the Midwest? I guess it's like rubbing off on me. I feel like you're attacking me with your culture. Get your culture out of here. Even just now. So like I have been dreading talking about this book since I finished it one and a half minutes ago. (laughs) And it took me a really long time to finish because it was like a brutal book to read. But when I don't want to do something, my trick is I just keep going to the bathroom a lot. It's a trick I developed in third grade to get out of most of my classes. What it does is it helps you not do the work till later, which is good because when you want to not do something, you should stretch it out. But anyway, there's water out there and I slipped three times going, coming, going, coming, going, coming. And each time I'm oof. <laughs> and I feel humiliated by it. I like it. I think it's endearing when people make like a unexpected sound. I'm making that sound. If you bump me, if I drop something, if I like breathe a little weird, I go. I love silly sounds. I feel like I come from a real silly sounds family. You know, when you can like really pin weird words and sounds to members of your family and you're like, oh, I like that about them. Well, I have a new one and it really makes me feel like I'm becoming middle aged. No, I feel like I'm becoming like an ant. I'm like, oof, that's what an ant says. Ashley, if you were a celebrity, yes, and you were to write a chapter about last week's memoir, what would you write? I would write, do not disturb. I'm trying to be on my phone less. And I know I always say this, but I really am trying. And I feel like something that's been helping is I've been getting really into workout classes. You are a big workout classes person. And I was always like, I can work out myself. I don't need a class. But I do need a class. And I also feel like being in workout classes has really helped me be like, spend one hour off of your phone because it's really rude to go out and check your phone during a workout class. I'm really like scheduling time. And then I feel like it keeps me a little bit more off my phone throughout the day because I'm practicing setting other goals. Like I can't look at my phone until I've like finished a bunch of tasks and I can't check my phone between tasks. Wow. Actually, one of my big pet peeves and it happened today in yoga class is when people bring their phone into the class. I hate that. Just be zen for a minute. I will say I've never brought my phone into a class, but when I work out on my own, I like check my phone between every workout. Yeah. When I try to do yoga at home, I'm like, how many minutes left? Yes. And it'll be like a 12 minute yoga thing. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, nine, nine more minutes. I've been here forever. Anyway, should we venture 
down to Waco, Texas for the most boring story ever told. <sighs> you guys, I guess they have another book and we should have read the other book. Yeah, I guess Chip and Joanna Gaines have a joint book called Magnolia Stories or some shit like that. But we thought the stories we tell by Joanna Gaines would be stories, especially because the description of it on the website was like a vulnerable tale of trouble and triumph and building a life. And I was like, oh, it'll be a vulnerable tale of triumphs. I wish I could control F a physical copy of a book to find out how many times she says vulnerable in this book. I wish I could see how many times she wrote stories. Over or under 200? Over. You guys, I like am breathing heavy. I can't explain it. I don't think I've hated a book this much in a while. My eyes couldn't hold on to the page. They were slipping off like it was covered in butter. I literally texted to Ashley and I said, if the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, then this book is insanity. Because on every page, it's the same sentence. And I kept being like, I just read this. We just said this. I felt like we were treading water in like shark infested seas, except for the sharks were motivational quotes. It literally felt like I walked into somebody's house and I lined up all of their painted wood posters or whatever and just lined them up and said, this is the book. Home sweet home. Home is where the heart of sugar and spice and tell your mom I love you twice. You know what women want? Yeah. How he gets electrocuted while holding a toaster and like a razor and then he can read women's minds. I feel like something like that happened. But I was holding like a book of prayer ideas that sits on the shelf next to the pharmacist. You know, when you wait for your medication and there's like Christian adjacent books. Yeah. I feel like I was struck by lightning while holding one of those books ironically. And then I was trapped in this tornado of just sayings that didn't really fucking make sense. I do feel like this book reminded me so much of astrology and church where like nothing actually says anything. So in it, there are a few good messages. But like the cadence of it is very churchy. It's very like short sentences that build upon each other to get to a slogan. And then at the end, everyone is like, yes. Yeah, it really did feel like she went to a sermon. And then she had to retell that sermon in a way where AI retold a sermon and said, take out any personal memories. Yeah. And so all that's left is like fluff about integrity and purpose and intention. Yeah. And moments. And your story. And your story. I feel like I'm being gaslit throughout this book into believing that there is a story. I feel like I was being gassed. Like, I felt like I was losing consciousness. And, you know, in TV, when they're like, Claire, 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 and it echoes away and like the sentences start just being in canon. That's what this book was like. I do feel like this book made me specifically insane last night when I called you when we were both reading it. I like started laughing in a way that felt so like out of my control today when we were talking about it. I'm about to start crying again now because I don't know what I think or feel. I feel like this book is such a very specific type of chamber torture. <laughs> like, you know, when they put someone in a chamber and they play Britney Spears songs super loud and like they turn the lights on so you can't sleep. You know what it reminds me of? And I don't even know if this makes sense, but that famous I Love Lucy scene where they're wrapping chocolates on the conveyor belt and It just keeps coming out faster and faster and they're like drowning in chocolates and they're overwhelmed. That's how I felt, but like of niceties. This book is so short and each page is only half filled and yet I just felt like I was reading backwards. So we are going to do our best to explain this book to you. There's not that much to explain, but this is a sleepy August afternoon. I hope you're listening to this somewhere that you, I don't know, need to numb your mind for a while. I will say if you need a book to help you go to sleep, 
there is something physical about the way that it's the same words over and over and they're saying nothing, but they're like incredibly dense sentences that get you half a centimeter further than you were. So your eyes like want to skim, but because there's nothing to ever grab on, they keep skimming over and over again, but you have to go to the top and be like, well, I didn't read it. I can't explain the science, but I fell asleep four times reading this book. I'm not a sleepy guy. Yes, I am. But this was exceptional. This book came out in 2022. So the first chapter is called A Story to Tell. And it's about the fact that she has a story to tell, but she's not going to reveal that secret. Yeah. Where is that story, Joanna? So she says, the first book I wrote, no one will ever read. Ain't that the truth? I was a senior in college and a broadcast journalism major. So it wasn't entirely unusual that I would take up a writing project. But this book wasn't meant for the masses. It was just for me and just for that season. Season is her only unit of time measurement. She will not confirm or deny the length of a season. You know, a season could be childhood. A season could be fall. A season could be the length of time between when her and Chip flipped their first house and when suddenly they had their own network. (laughs) What happened in between those two things? We will literally never know. She's had two seasons of having children, that first chunk and then the one where she got the good one. (laughs) You know, the pancake thing where it's like your first pancake, you mess up the second pancake you get, right? Her first pancake was actually four pancakes, but she's got a good one now. It's the first time she's ever been present as a parent. She finally has a kid she wants to watch. She's like, have you ever seen a kid take his first step? It's so cute. This is my fifth child. She's like, I am in awe of the miracles of motherhood this fifth time. Anyway, I love her. I actually really, I'm a huge fan of Fixer Upper. And you guys know I'm pretty cynical. I'm rarely in awe of celebrities. I rarely put too much stock in their character. But I loved Chip and Joanna. I loved their shiplap. I loved that they were taking their hometown of Waco and making it nice for everybody. I loved that they had four beautiful children with silly little single syllable names. I loved everything about them. And then when they stepped down from their TV show in the high fifth season, I think they were HGTV's most popular TV show. In the fifth season, world at their feet. They said, we're going to step back. We need more time for the family. We've lost sight of the family. And I said, these are... God's creatures. These are the best people that you could hope to find on TV. They are who they said they are. And then do you know what they found in that time they took off from their hit TV show to spend time with their family? A fifth kid and a TV network. They came back and said, instead of doing a TV show, we're going to do a TV network. And I said, you fucking lied to me. And I like haven't been able to love them the same way since. I felt so truly betrayed. I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. And I went down like an anchor, which we'll address in chapter nine. (laughs) I am deeply suspicious of these people, starting with the fact that I actually discovered last night that they don't have Wikipedia pages. That is so bizarre. This book was published by Magnolia Publications, which is their own publication house, which means they have their own hit TV show. They now have their own network. They have their own publishing company. They have their own newsletter, their own magazines. They have stores. They have Target collabs and they don't have a Wikipedia page. I find it so deeply sinister that they have successfully created a space where they are the only people allowed to distribute information about themselves. And they are so out of the limelight. Yeah, I guess Reddit might be the only place, but I bet you they have watchdogs on Reddit. I bet you because if you have like a dedicated enough team, you can just get anything removed from Reddit. I haven't searched them on Reddit because I avoid the platform, but I'm going to go look into it before this episode comes out because I find it so suspicious that they don't have a Wikipedia page. And I know that that sounds crazy. I like lost sleep over it last night. I woke up in the dead of the night and I said, bug search again. (laughs) Maybe I spelled Joanna wrong. Even the fact that their last name are Gaines. 
I feel like they're not real people. What do you mean the family that stays winning's last name is Gaines? You guys, this is really one of those books where it's going to be quite Patreon-esque and that it's just going to be on a lot of us gabbing because I can't face it. I feel physically repelled. The stories we tell. The first time she wrote her life story, she was living in New York City and she was in college. This is not a story we ever get in this book. She does not rehash any of those events. She wrote those down. She sealed them in a little envelope and she's been sitting on it ever fucking since. So this book had promised the first chapter. On page one, she's like, I was in New York City. And then she gets into her childhood about being half Korean, half white growing up in Kansas and how hard it was to be one of the only biracial kids in the whole fucking town. And so I go, okay, we're going to get into something. I didn't think it would ever be good, but I thought at least Chriselle Staus level, there'd be stories in here and you'd get a sense of a person. Especially considering this is stories we tell. It implied stories. But then literally this is the fourth paragraph in the whole book. She goes, here's the short version of a very complicated yet beautiful love story. Right off the bat, I go, short version. This is your book. I mean, at least tell us a medium version. You don't need to shorten it. And then she says her parents met in Korea in 1971. Her dad was there for the Vietnam War. They were writing letters back and forth, even though he only spoke English. She only spoke Korean. When her mom was 19, he sent her a ticket to America and said, will you marry me? If no, send back the ticket, please. She came to San Francisco a few months later. They got married and then they had two daughters or three daughters, it seems. Three daughters, but one of them is mentioned once in this book. Yeah, one of them is her best friend. and One of them you find out randomly by accident almost. One of them, you have to like trick her into accidentally saying her name is Teresa. <laughs> One of them is on the Wikipedia page, which is to say nowhere. <laughs> anyway, so right off the gate, I go, oh, that's a bad sign that like the story of her parents is given three sentences. She talks a little bit about how difficult it was to be biracial in this town and how the kids were mean to her and she felt very alone and she didn't ever want to burden her mother with that. But the way it's told is in this way where you can tell it's like to not make anybody feel too bad. Like, she doesn't want to dwell on it. I was teased in the way all kids were. And I go, no, being teased for being the only biracial kid in town is uniquely different. It's not the way I was teased. Yeah. And it's like, you're allowed to say that racism sucks. Yeah. And it sucks worse than maybe just having glasses. I grew up thinking I had two options, fit in or be called out. So I dressed the way other girls dressed. I laughed off insults. I told the other kids my middle name was Anne because it sounded more American than Lee. And that's kind of all we get of her life story. We get one little moment where she like moves to Manhattan and she actually loves being unique and she like loves discovering her Korean heritage. She goes to K-Town, which is a great couple blocks in Manhattan. Yeah, highly recommend. But then she's like, oh, okay, everything's actually fine. The only way to break free was to rewrite my story because something would happen every time my pen stopped night after night. It was like my soul was coming back to my body. So she learns that writing down your feelings is very helpful in helping you release pain, but she doesn't tell us what she wrote down. It's all just platitudes. I'll read a paragraph just because every paragraph is like the other paragraphs and you'll get a sense. Once I knew deep in my soul how it could feel to live out the truth of who I was, I got a taste for a new kind of meaning in life, meaning that makes living any other way feel like wasted time. All the untrue memories that came before felt like meaningless scenes stitched together and those moments lost their color. And you don't want to go back to being normal. You want to go back even further, back before the world got its hands on you, before other people got their hands on you. And you crave that perspective again and again and again. What is she talking about? And what I learned is that lies will always be worth fighting against because what you're left fighting for is the truth. And that is the most freeing thing in the world. This book made me feel insane. <laughs> Things had gotten blurry. I'd gotten blurry. My 44th birthday was just around the corner and I was realizing for the first time that it meant I was nearly halfway through this life of mine. 
It's hard to explain how I was feeling. I was grateful beyond measure, but exhausted, loved, but feeling unworthy, full, but running on empty. I started to experience anxiety for the first time in my life. That's not true. The rest of this book is about how she spent her whole life struggling with perfectionism and living in absolute fear. Anyway, so she decides that in order to learn what's holding her back, she needs to start writing again. And that's how we got this book. This book that helped her move towards who she is. But that's not the book you're reading. That's the thing. So she, when she was 21, and then again, when she was 43, wrote for herself the story of her life so that she could see the patterns and the story she was telling herself. It was very much like self-guided therapy, basically. Like you write down the story of your life, your narrative, and then you like see what you think your narrative is. And if you even believe in that. When I went to therapy, that is what you do. You go and you're like, here's how I feel. And then the therapist who's good will be like, do you recognize the patterns of what you're saying out loud? Do you believe that? Who told you that? And hopefully you're able to dismantle it. Anyway, so that's what she does. This book is not the story of her life. It is the story of how writing the story was so helpful. Yeah. The point of this book is she wants to share the story of writing that story so that you can find your story. I'm going to try to persuade you to recognize the power of knowing your story and owning it in every way because like mine, your story is yours alone. It's one of a kind. It seems to me that there are very few absolutes in this life, only a handful of things that are true to their core. I believe your story is one of them and there is infinite value in a life that seeks a meaningful story and is willing to be shaped by it. Human beings have been telling stories for as long as there's been language to tell them. For many thousands of years, since the first cave paintings, telling stories has been one of our most fundamental ways of communicating. And isn't almost every story a connection of cause and effect? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? So if we think in stories, remember in stories, speak in stories, and turn just about everything we experience into a story, what does that say about the value of your own? You tell me, Joanna. What the fuck are you trying to say here? This is the most worthless sentence I've ever read in my life. It just keeps going. The next page. My journey since New York has only strengthened my notion of story. What? I don't even know. I don't even know how to make fun of this because it's so nothing. We've had opportunities to meet and work alongside people much different from us, opening our eyes to the breadth and diversity of human experience. And since then, Chip and I have become sort of story obsessed. I actually love stories. And since I met people who aren't myself, I'm actually obsessed with the fact that everyone says different things about their lives. It does make perfect sense that they are such a success because she is like intuitively a branding genius. Yeah. Can I say your house finally becomes a home when it tells your story? Here's like an example of the pacing of this book. When Chip and I were just getting our construction and home renovation business off the ground, I didn't know a lot about the art of home design. And then she talks about how she learned that she likes a home when it tells your story. And then she goes, when Fixer Upper aired for the first time, Chip and I were completely caught off guard by how people were responding to our story. As our audience grew, so did our understanding of story. Anyway, now she has a network. That's as much info as you get. Anyway, so she says that she had a sense of purpose, but she realized how many years she had lived guarded. So writing down her story made her realize that she's been showing up in pieces, only showing the parts of me I feel confident in. That's what I mean by there are things in this book that I feel like would be valuable if they were supported by any structure. Okay, that's exactly how I felt because I was reading this book and you guys already know. I don't think I have to tell you again from the last three minutes. I struggled with it. Even though she doesn't tell us anything, I do get a sense of not who she is, but the type of person she is, which is yes. someone who her whole life struggled with perfectionism. If things were bad, she would never tell anybody. She never tells you what was bad. She never tells you the ways that she micromanaged. But she's like, anytime something wasn't going the way I wanted it to, I'd micromanage other parts of my life. I would have never tell my friends and family that I was struggling. I thought I had to be perfect. I've always been showing up and performing. And I do know people like that. I do think there's a lot of people like that. And especially you see it in almost the women, the homemaking. Your home is the thing that you can control. Yeah. The perception of you by others is the thing that you have to be tending to. I do think there's a lot of people who can relate to that. 
and someone as successful as Joanna, who they would look up to, hearing it from her would be helpful. And so I wanted to give that grace and be like, this to me is a tough book to get through. But I think if I needed this info and I was in that season of my life and I was somebody who was looking to her for help, it would be helpful. But then I said, no, it wouldn't because of course everybody knows, oh, you don't have to be perfect. Saying that to somebody doesn't change them. Sharing genuine vulnerability in moments of your life. Like, I'm sorry, but I cannot stop thinking about Kat Marnell's like bloody jeans trying to stab a rat in Condé Nast. Do you know what I mean? Like that is shit where I go, I do not want to be addicted to Adderall. That life sounds bad. But if Kat Marnell had sat down and said, things in my life had gotten really tough, so tough that I didn't see a way out. I thought about my story and the pieces of my life that made me me. And I thought in order to get to the version of me that I hope I can become, I have to change the things that are so bad, but never mentioned Adderall. Never meant like you'd be like, okay. Or even be like, sure, my life seemed great. I may have had this cool job and going on free trips and had all this beautiful clothes and free beauty stuff. But inside things were hard. You'd go shut the fuck up. Yeah. This book almost makes me long for the Stassi Schroeder books, the Chriselle books. A Colin Jost even had a moment in time that he described with detail. At least used proper nouns. Yes. This book has no proper nouns except Chip. And her son Drake got his license recently. So we hear about that a lot. Yeah. That is like a recurring metaphor that she uses. My son is driving out the door. Yeah. And crew we hear from a lot because he's the good one. He's the favorite baby. Anyway, I realized how many years of my life I lived guarded, how long I'd shown up in pieces, sharing only the parts of me I feel confident. This is something that I think would be useful if it was explain a time where you realize that you had to truly let yourself be known. This book is my story and every chapter is a window into who I am. That is a flat out lie. When I say story, I don't mean history. I mean the whole story, any piece of our past and present that could use a little rebranding. For me, it's often the stuff that isn't easy to talk about, the things I bury, that I try to avoid living in my day-to-day life. Yet, I think it's there, right in the reliving, that we have the chance to change the narrative. Not letting a lie or misguided thought be the last thing we carry forward, but instead saving that space for the truth. And because I believe there is power in asking our body to act on our heart's behalf, even if we don't believe the truth yet, writing it down is a powerful first step. Okay, like, what did you write down? It's so weird. I'm going to ask that you read this book slowly, hopefully at a pace that leaves room for your own story to unfold. Maybe journal after each chapter or go for a walk. What do you say? What beautiful story is yours to tell? I'll go first. I will say journaling between chapters of this, I kind of wish I had because it would have been the most unhinged shit I've ever said. At 21, I left New York believing that every bit of who I am and what I have to offer is mine to hold, to own, and to use to make beautiful things in the world. It's like I was seeing the full picture of my life for the first time, not just the highlight reel of rights and wrongs. That is the only story we get in here that one time when she was 21, she went to New York and like discovered K-Town and it like changed her life. But she never says, here's the people I met. Here's the things I leaned into. Here's the food. There's just like not a detail in sight. It's psycho. It had a lot of that. When I was 21, I didn't know who I was, but it's okay because that summer I figured it out. Yes. And I'm like, oh, okay. At 21, it was all fixed with one trip to K-Town. Well, at 21, she didn't know who she is, but luckily she got married and that's a thing. Whatever we have in common, whatever differences lie between us, I only hope my story can help shine a light on the beauty of yours. I really do think you can feel that this book was written to be liked, which is funny. The style of this book actually tells you more about her than she is willing to say that she's so afraid of alienating you with her success, with her her heritage and culture with anything. She won't share a fucking detail of who she is because mostly this story is about your story. But that's not what a memoir is about. People find more of themselves in the specifics, not in this general idea of don't you ever think about yourself? And it is like an absolute level of fear because we do live in a society right now that there are crazy people 
who will come to you when you share a specific and they will say, well, that doesn't match my specific. And her fear of internet crazies, letting that dictate this book is so unhinged. I guess I don't think it is even internet crazies. I think in her heart of hearts, this is her struggle is she can't be vulnerable. And this whole book is about how at 44, she's suddenly like, it's cool to be vulnerable. I'll show you later. (laughs) It's very, I have a girlfriend. She lives in Canada. You wouldn't know her. I'm really okay being open and showing you my flaws. They're there. Just believe me. I'll show you later. I have them. No, you say yours and then I'll say mine. Yeah. No, listen, I wouldn't admit it back then, but there was times when we were not financially stable. I can say it now that we have $100 million in the bank, but it feels so good to get that off my chest. Listen, I know you guys are here because you love popping something on to listen to and having your mind expanded. And with Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Whether you're ready to become a master chef or you just want to learn something new about literature, music, any topic under the sun, Masterclass has a class for you. Annual memberships start at $10 a month and you get unlimited access to every instructor, thousands of online lessons, exclusive content, insights, and so much more. There are over 180 classes to pick from. And there are so many classes from CNBC Memoirist, and I'm talking about the good ones. Do you want to learn about music from Timbaland, aka the greatest producer to ever live? I know the answer is yes, and guess what? You can. Mariah Carey, aka the greatest songstress who ever lived, teaches a masterclass in using your voice as an instrument. Baby, get to singing. On my playlist, I'm getting ready to become an expert in interior design. Look out. And I am loving a series called Talking Shop where experts in their field are talking about the experts who inspire them. You guys know I love to hear passionate people talk about the things that they are passionate about. It's so wonderful to hear writers and filmmakers talk about the things that inspire them. Whether you are looking to become a better chef, a better writer, a better musician, or you are just looking to expand your creative brain outside of work, not everything has to be work you are going to love Masterclass. Gain new skills in as little as 10 minutes on your phone, computer, tablet, smart TV, or even just use audio mode to listen on the go. Being able to get smarter or learn new things while I walk the baby bug, watch out world, I'm about to become a whole new me. How much does it cost to take one class from the world's best? With Masterclass annual membership, it only costs $10 a month. Get unlimited access to every class. And right now, as a Celebrity Memoir Book Club listener, you can get 15% off when you go to masterclass.com slash worm. That's masterclass.com slash worm for 15% off an annual membership. That's masterclass.com slash worm. So the next chapter is called When Fear Breaks, and it is about the level of fear and insecurity that has followed her her entire life. She does give us one semi-autobiographical story here. She says she's a middle child. Fact. Fact. And she went to kindergarten. Fact. True. (laughs) And when she was in kindergarten, she felt very ready to go to kindergarten. She was excited. She wasn't one of those kids who was worried about going to school because she had an older sister who went to school and school looked cool. So she goes to school and she has to do show and tell. And that morning, a button had fallen off of her coat. And instead of being like, holy shit, I didn't prepare for show and tell, she was like, oh, I have that button in my pocket. That is fucking awesome. So she goes out into the hallway and she comes back in to show her class the button. And the whole class laughs in her face. 
and she is overcome with embarrassment. She leads with fear for the rest of her life. It planted the seeds of fear and that seed blossomed into a tree that lives inside of her. I don't know if you guys have experienced something so horrible, but this was worse than being a half Korean kid in Kansas. It was actually the button thing that did it. It was the first time I can remember caring what people think. The first time I experienced insecurity. Even if I could have put a name to it, I felt that sting of rejection. It might have been a small moment, but I let it morph into a big lie. I couldn't catch hold of fear, and I never knew what doors were safe to open, so I kept them all closed. As it turned out, fear was the one chasing me, turning up in all sorts of disguises, and even as I evolved, it could evolve too. So then she talks about how she spent years of her life not walking through unknown doors because of fear. Metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. So fear continued to trail me, masquerading as protection and safety, promising me a life unscathed, teaching me how to wear disguises of my own, perfection mostly, which is a word I use to soften the real desire, which is control. But here's what I've learned about perfection. It's isolating. And the more isolated I felt, the more fear grew. So there is a line that I actually highlighted because I felt like here is something, here is a truth. And I think it gets back to the Kat Marnell comparison of addiction, which is a horrible disease, but can often be glamorized and made to look sexy and fun and Tumblr and cool, heroin chic. This is a truth that unless it is backed up with examples that you want to share so that people can see for real that it is not good and it's better to like try and fail than to hold yourself to an impossible standard that makes you so alone, saying it will not help anybody. What's my biggest flaw? Caring too much. <laughs> I like to be too on time. <laughs> it is true that the perfection thing is a control thing. And I'm sure, I don't want to like project, I'm sure there's an eating thing. The problem is when you say you don't understand being perfect, it was bad for me. Am I beautiful with five children, a toned body, a giant farmhouse and a TV network and a marriage? Yes, but it wasn't all roses. Like you have to let us into the bad because your whole life is the platform of the good. Yes. You are somebody whose entire career is staked on how beautiful you can make things look and how picturesque your life is. And that's what we've bought into. So if you're going to be big and vulnerable... You have to show us something on the other side or why would we fucking listen to you? Especially because all she says is that school was hard for her because she was embarrassed and afraid of being herself around the other kids. Those early days of high school got better. Eventually, I found a few friends and a familiar table in the cafeteria. But that's not the point of this story. The point is that something kept me from walking through those doors sooner. In that moment, all signs pointed to fear. My hands shook, my breath shortened, my body froze. But as I look back on that moment with a few decades living and learning between us, I was wrong to give fear all the credit. So she's saying fear took root in me and it affected my entire experience, except for when it was fine. It's so weird. And so then she talks about meeting Chip and how he doesn't have a fearful bone in his body. This first year we were married, we were making decisions faster than I could process them. They were renovating their house. They just got rental properties. They started making home improvements. She opened the Magnolia shop and she talks about how that was the biggest risk of her life and she was so scared. And it's like, okay, and then what happened? She talks about like throwing up in the car on the way home from her first wholesale purchase. Only when I was completely worn down by fear and its control over my life did I start to ask myself what I was so afraid of to begin with. And then I could see that what might have been a real threat at one point of physical fear, a shame or insecurity, a moment of sincere pain had since morphed and multiplied and spun out of theories I let define me. And that wasn't the story I wanted my life to tell. I would come to learn that vulnerability is my path back. What knocks the wind out of me is what forces me to learn to breathe again. What? Vulnerability. When I was willing to be vulnerable about how wildly I could fail, when I was willing to say, I don't know what I'm doing, this won't be perfect, but I'm going to give it all I've got, everything about opening that little shop felt vulnerable. 
Chip and I spent the same years buying and selling houses around Waco. I didn't go to interior design school, yet here we were leveraging our livelihoods on being able to flip homes. There was no degree of proof that I knew what I was doing. When Fixer Upper started filming our work and people were actually watching us, this on-the-job skill I had so much to learn about was suddenly center stage. People were calling me a designer. And then she goes, less than a handful of years ago, Chip and I were a couple of seasons away from launching Magnolia Network, and the idea of my own cooking show came up. At the end of this book, she goes, we just wrapped season six of my cooking show. I'm like, when did these things happen? How did these things happen? That is crazy that within five years, you went from somebody with no design background to flipping houses for a living, to having a TV show, to having a TV network. And it is impressive to have conquered those fears. I think a lot of people forget that everyone has the same fears and the same doubts in themselves, but some people choose to let them run their lives and some people choose to say that they don't matter. When people look at influencers who are posting outfit videos and a lot of people on the internet will get so mad at them, me included, because they're just like, why are they so confident posting the stupidest outfit I've ever seen? You have the exact same fear in yourself that they do, but they've said, I don't care, I'm posting anyway. And you've said, my outfit is too stupid, I won't post it. Even us, because we did it. (laughs) I don't know, you could do it too. It's two mics and an internet connection and a book. That's what it takes to be us. Literally, we get criticisms all the time where people say, why do you guys think that you're the authority on reviewing these memoirs? We are literally not. We just said that we wanted to and we started doing it. And that's it. That's 100% of it. I think that it is interesting to like get that perspective of, yes, it's true. Like Joanna Gaines has the same fears as the next person who isn't flipping houses because they're afraid that their flipping is bad. I mean, Joanna Gaines is the most talented woman in the world. That's so true. So like I will say if you're like, why her and not me? It's because she is better than us. But most of the time, they're not better. Hearing her say like, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm scared. I'm like, that actually is helpful. I just wish it had been backed up with a real anecdote of almost any kind. So here's one little, little fact that we got. I guess she started a blog around this time and she claims in the blog she would like share what it was like raising children. And she kind of acts like she was vulnerable in the blog. And then because she was vulnerable, people shared their vulnerabilities with her. But I don't know if I believe her. I definitely don't. It was probably vulnerable in the sense of like, today I had mom guilt because I am so successful and I have so many beautiful children. And although I tucked them in and read them a story, I was too tired to read them a second story. And people were like, oh my God, I feel this so hard when I get back from my 15-hour nursing shift. I'm too tired to read my son's story. Vulnerability is why I'm here, but also what led me here, wanting to share my story with you. What are you talking about? You have not shared a thing, Joanna Gaines. All you've shared with us is how perfect you are. That's what riles me up. The slogan for this chapter that she builds to is fear breaks, we rise. I don't really know what that means. It's like a wave the wave breaks and you know how out of every wave a person conquering their demons rises out of it none of us has to go on fighting monsters in the dark by ourselves we can show one another that it's safer to live open-hearted after all out of hiding willing to step forward courageously even when there's no guarantee only a hope that the life we're worthy of abounds on the other side whether we leap forward or put up one brave foot in front of the other joanna you haven't said a goddamn thing don't tell me to be vulnerable and share my story you go You with your perfect long hair after five children in your 40s. I literally said to Ashley, I don't know if you guys listen to our Patreon where we talked to Alison Bornstein, who is a stylist who invented the three words method for style. Like think of your three words that describe your style and then every outfit should have those three words. I was like, my three words are Joanna Gaines ugly, which is like, I'm always trying to be the ugly version of Joanna Gaines, which is truly jeans and like a button down flannel but the trick is when you're beautiful it looks so good and when you're ugly it looks how I look most (laughs) 
Support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane, and the timing could not be better. With summer winding down, Jenny Kane's California classics are the perfect transitional season staples. From flowy dresses to lightweight cotton cardigans and just elevated versions of all your everyday basics, they're exactly what you need to go from day to night when the weather is picking a temperature out of a hat and that's the temperature for the day. Just last week at the beach, I was able to throw my Jenny Kane sweater on over some jean shorts. It is the perfect outfit for an evening when it gets a little blustery, but it's still summertime. They're the softest sweaters in the world. Every single time I wear my Jenny Kane sweater, I am absolutely rained on with compliments. Compliments coming from left, right, center, myself. I'm complimenting myself and I'm saying, Ashley, you're wearing the softest sweater you've ever worn. Great job. Jenny Kane is known for their super luxurious cashmere sweaters, and trust us, they do summer cotton better than anyone else. The Chloe Cardigan is my favorite for beach days. The Cotton Fisherman sweater is a year-round bestseller, and everything in the collection is designed so intentionally so you can style the pieces together without a second thought. I love to pair a Jenny Kane dress with one of the classic sweaters for a look that is so effortless, so easily pulled together. Jenny Kane believes in the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless design, so you can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. They also have a stunning collection of home essentials, timeless furniture pieces, cozy throws, perfectly curated decor, and the most incredible candles. If you have ever thought, oh, this sweater is so soft, I wish I could just cocoon myself in it, make it a throw. They also have an incredible rewards program and you can earn up to 10% back with every purchase and joining is completely free. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code WORM at checkout. That's 15% off your order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com promo code WORM. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. Chapter 3, Bridges. For a while, I was good at building fortresses, good at establishing one sturdy wall of self-protection after another. I knew how to retreat, and for most of my life, I considered it a safety measure. But once you let vulnerability seep through those walls, once you give away your heart, bring a child into this world, and share your work with someone, all bets are off. It's funny because she's like, the minute I had a kid, those walls were broken down, and I realized how futile it was to try and be protected. But then she's like, my children were my number one self-defense about being perfect. And I'm like, huh? This one actually made so little sense to me. I don't even know how to summarize it. I'm reading this quote that I underlined and I was like, what was I thinking when I underlined it? (laughs) I know it's vulnerability that has me feeling a little weak in the knees. At the same time, I can also sense a temptation to give in to familiar villains, fear namely, telling me it's safer to go back to old ways of self-protecting in the midst of uncertainty. And it's in that precious gap I'm learning that pain from our past makes its move in search of those crevices that finds the place where you're exposed and it flows in with the strength of a river. And it's in those precious gaps that we will tell ourselves those well-worn stories that always keep us held in suspension. It's like chicken soup for the Dr. Seuss. <laughs> it's like Seussian rhymes over photos of pebbles on the beach. Yeah, it's giving first-year yoga instructor. <laughs> Literally. I bet you know the stories I'm talking about. All these chapters are about like four things. They're about your stories, your vulnerabilities, your intentions, your defenses. So it's hard to situate yourself. But this one is about, oh, your story. (laughs) And the story you tell yourself and how you allow experience basically to hold you back. You say, well, it didn't work last time. Or when I was four, people said my dress was ugly. So now that I'm 24, my dress is still ugly. (laughs) 
As I think back now to my younger self, my heart breaks for what I know she'll go through. What did she go through? Tell me. It's happening, you guys. I feel panic. I feel afraid. I feel the walls closing in on me. I looked at the page and I just saw this. Or when left to your own imagination, did that story boil down to conclusions about your value and worth and leave you feeling more insecure than ever about who you are and whether you're enough? I can point to a handful of times I've done this recently where a conversation left me guessing intent rather than asked if I'd guessed wrong or even if I'd guessed right. Instead, that story sinks into my head and into my heart as truth when really without knowing the facts, it's nothing more than a theory, nothing more than make-believe. Yet this is why we'll learn to guard ourselves. We'll go on building castles in the sand. Please, please <laughs> say anything real. I'm sinking. I'm sinking into nothing. My stomach is a knot in a pit. And I feel like I'm going to be eaten by my own appendix because I'm dreading having to think of more things to say. Didn't we read that sentence already? I just feel like we're in circles in the desert and I'm going to have a fucking panic attack. I am crying again. I don't know what to say to her. I just remembered this chapter. The thing is how she learned what empathy is and she has no fucking empathy because if she did, she would never have put me through this. I've now walked through this process of writing down my story twice in my life. And interestingly enough, both times the same themes have risen to the surface. What were they? Oh, insecurity about my identity and fear of not being good enough. Okay. But this is the transformative part. Consider how you could give your pain purpose and how you might wield it for good. So basically she's saying in here that she learned that empathy is not sympathy or pity, that she's a fixer and she always tries to fix people. She's trying to fix her up, are you? <laughs> she's trying to put some shiplap on that divorce. <laughs> anyway, but she's realized that sympathy and pity are different than empathy. And if you look at your own pain, you can realize that maybe you can relate to someone else's pain. Here's what's interesting, though. She goes, but if I have not lived through what they're going through, I don't pretend to have empathy. I just listen and try to learn. And I'm like, is there not a part of empathy that's like being able to understand someone else's pain, even if it's not yours? I thought that's the whole thing. Like understanding someone else's pain, even if it's not yours. She also then remembers that this chapter was called Bridges. Bridges, however, by their very nature, carry us forward. That's not necessarily true. You can go whichever which way you want on a bridge. You can go forward. You can go backward. You can go off the side and put yourself out of the misery of this book. Keep reading. They connect us first to our own story and then to the stories of others, knowing something of the alternative, the loneliness and isolation comes with self-protection. I can say that I'm willing to build bridges of empathy till my hands give out because now I believe that bridge by bridge is how we survive. What? Here's a story that they'll finally fucking give us. Are you guys ready for this big whopper of a story where somebody showed her empathy? One time she went through a thing, <laughs> undescribed, but they were at dinner with friends. And you're not her friend, so she won't tell you, but she told the friends. And you know what the friends said in response? Nothing. They sat in silence. And at first it made Joanna uncomfortable, but then she realized maybe they all needed to sit in silence. And instead of trying to outrun the thing, undescribed, maybe we sit in it and we just feel it. Have you ever tried feeling an undescribed feeling? They weren't quick to fix our grief because they'd known something of it themselves. They let us sit with it, let it do what it needed to do. Not resistant. I think they knew that that only ends up hurting more. What only ends up hurting more? What was the thing? Oh, God. I don't know. And then she talks about she tells her kids to hang out with losers at school because she knows what it's like to sit alone. As a culture, it feels like we're struggling to see people as people with beating hearts and flesh and bones layered in wonder but simply as right or wrong, forgetting that we are real and complex human beings whose stories run deep, that we are more than this or that, 
and that the reason and meaning and truth often sit below the surface. What is she talking about? But once you try, once you really empathize with someone's experience and where they're coming from, that's when compassion rises up. That's when resolution and resolve rise up. If we spend our time going back and forth, just so you hear me and I hear you, rarely are we ever going to come to a place of peace. But choose empathy, choose understanding, and it destroys the assumption that different means we have nothing in common. In its place, it rebuilds what has always been far truer. There is more that bonds us than breaks us. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that they have like gotten called out multiple times for going to a pastor that's anti-gay. I think it is. I think that she's afraid to like use any words here because if she says that it's okay to be gay, she'll get in trouble at church. Or if she says it's not okay to be gay, she'll get in trouble on TV. That's so true. Later, she has this whole chapter about opinions and how maybe we should have less of them. (laughs) There is this one part where she does say racism is bad, which is pretty crazy. But she's like, but just because we all think things doesn't mean we all have to speak. She's like, I don't think everyone has to say everything. (laughs) Just because I have a platform doesn't mean you should be asking me questions about what I believe. Who cares? (laughs) I'm like, okay, vulnerable. In order to empathize with someone else, I have to first offer myself that same grace. I actually feel like that's the opposite. I guess I think that it's harder to like care for somebody else if you're holding yourself to a high standard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think generally a healed person is more likely to offer healing. I'll give you that one, Jojo. She does go into the story about when her kids fall down, what they need, and like how her baby crew, her sweet baby, favorite baby crew fell and she'll give him a band-aid and be like, you're fine. And he's like, no, it still hurts. And she's like, in that moment, I realized maybe I need to extend empathy and listen. But sometimes her older kids, they have a problem at school. And sometimes she just has to listen to them. But all our kids need something different. But all the different things are listening. That's so true. I'll read the final paragraph of this chapter just because the thing about this book is it's like a great bathroom book. You could open it to any page. And every paragraph is the same as the last paragraph. It's just like remixed. As I step forward into the next season of my life, this is what I know to be true. Empathy is the only way we move forward intact. It's the only way we restore understanding and reclaim shared moments of goodness, of humor, of lightness, of a culture that feels like it's on our side. I can't imagine a world where it doesn't move the needle. I can't imagine us coming out on the other side of every bridge and not being made stronger because of it, not taking better care of ourselves and one another because of it, not finding healing because of it. And I can't imagine that not being the greatest story we ever write together. I don't know what that means. Me either. Did you get it? Oh, here's the quote that she thought was the best quote from that chapter because every chapter ends with like her favorite quote. A fortress will only ever keep us safe for a time and is only ever good for hiding, not healing. Share your story because that's when we can all connect, but she will not. Yeah. An idea I had for you guys is maybe open up. Totally. Not to me, though. So this is chapter four called Look Up. I've been trying to write down everything I could remember from the first handful of years of life as a family. It would have been the late 2000s and Chip and I had brought home four babies in five years. We do not get a single word of that attempt at writing. I ended up jumping ahead in the years and I was weaving in and out of family trips first days of school and the way our business grew alongside us, I had to pause when I got to 2018. We don't get a single detail from the late 2000s to 2018. She does not remember a thing. She does not share it with us. And it does actually turn out that she literally can't remember. She's like, it turns out starting this huge business and having four kids was a lot. And I don't really have any memories. Can I say that is not true? Because later in the book, she talks about referring to several detailed journal entries. She used to journal all the time. Yeah, but like you journal it right out of your head. Yeah, you journal it out of your head. And then you can look back at the journal and say, what was in my head that day? 
So then she talks about the whirlwind that was having four babies in five years. No, she doesn't. She says it was a whirlwind. Okay, so she says that there was a whirlwind where she had four babies in five years. And then there was a whirlwind where they started flipping houses, even though they were not yet financially stable. Then there was another whirlwind where it became a TV show and they became very financially stable. But then they weren't spending a lot of time with the family. So they decided to step back from the TV show. And then she had a baby. That was a year like no other. Chip and I had been running for a while, maybe 15 years. Those four babies had become kids and teenagers. We'd grown a business, found ourselves on a television show, and were constantly in the middle of a project. We loved all of it for the most part, but it was starting to show that we wouldn't be able to keep pace much longer. Fixer Upper had just aired its fifth and what we thought would be final season. Also in that summer, 2018, Chip and I looked at each other feeling out of breath and agreed that the family needed a rest. Only two weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. So she literally covers 15, 16 years in a paragraph. As I came out of a series of seasons that always had me running, crew was slowing me down. Crew was rest. So she like discovers the meaning of rest because now she has a baby that she has to take care of. When I think back to the beginning, our first four kids were born in such quick succession that honestly, it's no surprise it was all a bit of a blur. She only ever names her oldest son and her youngest son. Her kids are named Drake as the oldest, Ella, and then Duke, and then Emmy K. Emmy K. Emmy K is not a part of this book. Yeah, no, she's not. But it goes, yeah, Drake, Ella, Duke, Emma, eight years go by, crew. Okay, so we've got the top four. We've got the bottom one. Who's actually the top one? So when the kids were young, when they first got married, they were just trying to survive. They had so many kids and so much going on. And this is where she says she was a bit of a perfectionist because so much fell out of her control. Life was so hectic that she tried to control it by seeking perfection. I kept living for all that people could see, the way things looked, the structure we lived in, the next, you name it. Fucking name it, bitch. (laughs) So her whole point is like, the way that she exerted control was through schedules and structures and making everything look nice. And sometimes she thinks her pursuit of keeping everybody on task and on schedule means she forgot the little moments and they just breezed right by. And like all of her effort went into a big, beautiful birthday party, a big, beautiful Christmas, and not the little moments like tucking them in at night. But then she goes, but then I forgive myself because I had so much going on. I don't know that I could have done it a different way. And I'm like, fair enough. But also, who cares? Why did it take 40 pages to explain that? When crew came along, the weight of things started to shift. I was older, more confident and comfortable in my own skin and realizing that some of the qualities I'd relied on for most of my life that made me productive and successful were no longer serving what I wanted my future to look like. I wanted to see things this time that had been in my blind spot before. What I longed for was a sense of presence. I wonder if she ever considered that it's like a lot easier to actually like be present and have a child when you're super rich and you have four older kids to like kind of take the weight off of babysitting. Whereas having like four kids under five is actually so hard because they can't take care of each other. And when you have two full-time working parents, also they would live in their flips. So they moved like 10 times in 10 years. That is crazy. With four kids. To have four kids under five and you're moving every single year. Claire, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) I feel every way about this book. I go, yeah, you got to slow down, enjoy life. And then I go, but yeah, I mean, with that many kids, you can't slow down and enjoy life. But I go, but why did you have so many kids? (laughs) It's all true and it's all crazy. I guess this chapter actually really bothered me because she's trying to talk about presence. But I do believe even with her other little platitudes. I think that she at least understands the word that she's talking about and she's just explaining it in the stupidest and longest way possible. In this chapter, I think she genuinely has no idea what the fuck she's talking about and it annoys me because I do think when we were talking earlier about like, could this book actually help someone? 
this chapter, I think, is all wrong. We all have different tendencies towards distractions that keep us looking down. It might be an obsession with work, which is easily fed by burying ourselves deeper in it. Or maybe it's a natural inclination towards discontentment easily fed by scrolling through social media. For me, I wasn't made to sit still. I genuinely enjoy having a lot on my plate. Too much downtime and I get antsy. Not enough projects and I get bored. So she's talking about how one of the reasons she can't be present is because it's like not even fun for her. But that's not what presence is. Being busy is not the opposite of being present. You can be present in a busy schedule. Yeah, I guess she means like being a workaholic versus not being a workaholic. Yeah. Because being present is like holding her baby, hanging out with her kids, eating dinner. She has this experience where she goes out for a walk and finds a flower by itself and she plucks it even though there's cars driving by. And what could be more embarrassing in the world? than plucking a flower by yourself. I didn't let the thought of what people might think of me ruin the moment. It's sprinkling in the dead of summer and there was one flower hiding in the grass for me. What would anybody think of you? Who would care? If I looked out the window in one of those giant pastoral beautiful fields that sometimes are on the side of the highway and I saw a woman out there just plucking a flower to go, oh, that looks nice. And maybe I wouldn't even think that. If there was a horse nearby, I'd be looking at the horse. If there was a cow nearby, I'd be slapping the ceiling of my car. Is that what you're supposed to do? Yeah. I've never done that. Oh, my God. You've got a lot of bad luck, my friend. That explains everything. (laughs) Maybe we're not officially taught it in school, but I think from a young age, we begin to learn efficiency's value in the world. We're encouraged to manage our time well and offered reminders by those older and wiser that time flies by. I can't believe she just discovered capitalism. While I let ideas around efficiency consume the first half of my life completely unfought, when crew came along, I wanted to feel again. I spent a season trying to wrestle the busy out of me, feeling repulsed by my own tendency to go, go, go. I viewed presence or slowness or solitude, whatever name you give it, as a luxury. Maybe that's the same view you hold today. Maybe it feels as elusive and far away as the day your kids will move out of the house or the year you'll finally retire. There are magazines and podcasts dedicated to mindfulness. From all sides, we're encouraged to pursue it in order to slow down, to take up yoga to be more mindful, to turn off our phones to enjoy the quiet, walk around the block to clear our heads, read a book to escape, stay home and be still, or better yet, go out to be present. Aimless directives like these can make it impossible to know what presence should look like. That's why I created a chart with stars so that you could check off every time you're present. And if you're present five times in a week, you get a gift. (laughs) Nobody really knows how to move forward. Least of all, those of us who need to feel something real the most. (laughs) The people who most need to be present don't know how to be present. And Joanna Gaines is the person who most needs to be present. For me, this is a lesson I'm still learning. And those two simple words I'd find myself repeating in the early days of Crew's life, I still keep close whenever I feel that invariable tug to disengage from the present, to give in to some cheap distraction, to miss a moment I want to see more than anything. Look up. What is up there? I guess God. I think that's actually like a nod to God. A God Uh, nod. A God nod. Hello, my (laughs) all-powerful. I love what you've done with the war. (laughs) Joanna's made us crazy. We feel crazy. (laughs) Oh, my God. If spontaneous moments aren't your thing, get curious about what it is, a project you're passionate about. So she doesn't like spontaneous moments. In order to feel present, she chooses to prep for presence itself. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing those moments matter to me. I do everything I can to make sure I don't miss that. (laughs) Ladies, if you are raising a baby, ask them to schedule their first steps for you. (laughs) Or just moments of presence. 
Yeah. Put some time on the calendar and say, be present today. My hope is that the more you write, the more you remember, the more you'll feel the moments yourself. So she's talking about how to feel present in your past, I think. (laughs) I'm just going to keep reading this last paragraph of every chapter just because I feel like you guys don't understand how hard this was to read. Try to be present for this. The view from where you stand is spectacular. I hope you'll look up and take it in more often than not. Every breath, every sight, every sound. Because when we let our senses say to our soul, this is something that matters to me, we're reminded that we are more than we give ourselves credit for, that we have passions and true loves and a soul that sings, and that all those things really do mean more than the stuff that keeps us busy. It doesn't matter how late in life, how tall your walls, you have not missed your chance to see it. See what? Okay, here's the thing is I think all of these sentences would have been great Instagram posts over a font over a beach like I don't think anything she's saying is wrong it's just crazy to write 235 pages of like incredibly vague nothing yes imagine you spent six hours reading Instagram posts and calling it a book like you'd feel insane and I feel insane this next chapter I think we can run through really quickly but I do want to read this one part so this chapter is called to hold and let go so in this chapter she talks about the dichotomy of her youngest son learning how to walk up and down stairs the same day that her oldest son got his driver's license and drove away from her. I actually think that that is not a dichotomy. They're both developing more freedoms. I think that when your son can go up and down stairs without you, he is like getting a new freedom within the house and your oldest son is getting a new freedom within the world. They're not opposites. They're the same, but I'm not going to argue with her on this. I can't explain the way I feel right now. I feel like I've been holding my breath for an hour. I feel like I have asthma. You might have gotten asthma from too much presence. I feel like I'm having a panic attack. (laughs) Like I'm having a hard time breathing. I feel like no breath I take is deep enough. I just feel like we're not even close to the end of this. No, we have to get to the end. We must. I've already been in the headspace of this chapter thinking that if you've come this far, how can I show you that the point of writing down your story isn't all toil and sadness, soul work and painful journal entries? Where have we seen sadness, soul work and painful entries? When she was teased in middle school. Oh my God, that was tough. So then she's like, I'm a self-proclaimed hoarder. She loves trinkets. You guys know. And then she writes, while I'm grateful for seasons of hard work and heavy loads because they show me what my arms can carry, I know I wasn't made to hold only the hard, only the pain and the guilt. There is more to me than that. More hope than fear, more joy than sorrow. But toil thrashes and lack lives out loud. What the fuck does that mean? If we don't learn to do the hard work of letting go of these things, there will never be room in our story for all the beauty it bears. I'm grateful to have found truth on the other side of lies, vulnerability on the other side of fear, empathy on the other side of pain. This is how I know that every season has a purpose and that holding, even when it leads to letting go, is what clues us into the bigger story being told. If you believe that too, if you can hold your story in truth for all that it is, the good and the bad, not perfect, but whole, if you can see who you are as richer than a past or future thing, that's the perspective we're after. That's the gift of writing down your own story. Do you guys feel like we're reading the same page over and over again? Like, do you see how fucking insane I feel? (laughs) Have we not been talking about writing down the story and the pain and the purpose and the intention and the gift and the lies and the truth and the vulnerability for years now? Okay, so this sermon is about how beauty can grow from tragedy. So if you've ever had any actual tragedy in your life, you're probably a better person because of it. Some of life will be predictable, but much of it won't. Sometimes letting go will hurt, but that's how we have a frame of reference. So the tragedy in her life was that she is super close to her younger sister, Mickey, and she and Mickey lived next door to each other, but Mickey married a doctor who had to go somewhere else for residency. So for 10 years, her sister lived in a different state than she did. 
And they weren't neighbors. Now Mickey moved back to her neighborhood and now they're closer than ever and they were actually able to grow from their time apart and now they have more to talk about because they like experience things separately. So that is a beauty from a tragedy. A tragedy. There's letting go and there's holding on. And if you look at gardening, so another example is she has a garden and everything bloomed beautifully because everything Joanna touches is perfect. <laughs> and I don't say that sarcastically. I mean, genuinely. Joanna, if you're listening, please come to any part of my life and make me look like you. I have beautiful original molding in my home. I will nail shiplap on top of it with a stapler. I don't give a shit. I will shiplap the stained glass. Just tell me what to do. Bring it up from Waco. My home is yours. Anyway, moving on. After the garden bloomed, you'll never guess what happened. There was a season. That season, winter. What happened in winter? Things died. And she was like, what the literal fuck is this bullshit? And then you know what happened? It came back. And that is the seasons. And the seasons have a rhythm. And a rhythm is the flow of life, the ebb and the flow. And there's a lot of comfort to be found in rhythm. A lot of predictability and beauty. Can I say something? Yeah. Not all rhythms follow a natural order. We aren't always at the mercy of time when it comes to the things we should hold and which things we need to let go. So some rhythms are jazz, anti-rhythms, if you will. And it just is what it is. And people were shocked when they stepped back from TV after the fifth season of Fixer Upper. But then they stepped back into TV and people said, oh, rhythm. So she's not wasting her energy on anger or resentment or fear, even grief over what we've lost, but to spend it on joy, hope, and gratitude. So like, look at what's in your arms. I let go of what's not serving you and then pick up something you'd like. And then she says that, you know, like your kids, sometimes the ways you help them when they're 10 won't help them when they're 12. And so that's another thing. Let's choose the rhythms that move us forward toward the flow of gratitude and hopeful expectation. Let's find strength in the way they shape us. I don't know what the rhythms of your life look like, but I hope that as you work to create new ones, you'll prioritize the things of life that you're longing to write about. That's nothing. You're saying nothing to me. <laughs> All right, deep roots. Even within our most precious things, there is ebb and flow. Change comes and goes. Kids we raise grow up. Work we pour ourselves into ends or gets too tiring, too easy, or simply we need new direction. Sometimes change is big and drastic and it happens right before my eyes and other times it is slow and gradual and it goes unnoticed until I look back and see how far I've come. But now I'm in a season where even a few of the things I counted as sacred for the first 25 years of my life the very things I fought so hard to have to hold are starting to feel heavy in my arms. Not because they're weighing me down, just the opposite. They need more room to grow. Is that not what we just said in the last chapter? Yeah, it is similar. Do you see what I mean? It's like we're building these tiny little inch blocks of like, build a bridge. On that bridge, bring a load. In that load, count your things. Of those things, put some down. Of the things you have in your load on your bridge, pick them up. Pick them up higher. Add some things. Do you love those things? Grow those things. Shut up. So now this chapter is about how as a kid she moved a lot and she was always starting at a new school. So she got really good at adapting to new situations. But then as an adult, because they were living in every single one of their house flips, they moved 10 times in their first years together. And it was so stressful and she hated it. And sometimes she didn't even have time to have deep roots, but she also roots deeper and faster than anyone else because she's so used to moving. But then she hated moving. And so when they got their house, the farm, she was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be deep roots. Some of us go on to grow our families. We have kids, make a home, figure out our purpose. We build our lives brick by brick with bodies that need to be fed, bills that need to be paid. Daily prayer, weekly date nights, monthly game and annual holiday parties. She says roots need a rhythm of their own. Growth by its very nature requires change, doesn't it? 
So now they're in their farmhouse and they love it. I have the stability I craved for so long, the permanence I yearned for as a little girl, and then again in the beginning of our marriage. I am deeply rooted in a home and family I love and work I'm passionate about, and yet I'm starting to feel the first rumblings of a shift in the ground beneath us. And her oldest son is going off to college. Basically, she's worried she hasn't spent enough time with her kids. Yeah, but also it's like the seasons thing. Didn't she read the last chapter? I don't know, man. I feel like time is a flat circle right now, and I like don't know where we are compared to where we started. She also then goes on to a new gardening metaphor about how sometimes if farmers till the same soil with the same thing for too long, it won't grow back. So you have to grow something new in that soil to like kind of even it out. And I guess that's a metaphor for life if you think about it, because <laughs> sometimes you're paying attention to different things. Historically, she never paid attention to her kids, but she has that fifth kid now and she's like, wait a minute, should I be raising this one? Yeah. So she gets obsessed with the outcomes more than she's obsessed with the journey. And so she was trying to spend more time with her kids. So she like made a commitment to have like a kid date every single Thursday. But then she would beat herself up if she missed a kid date. And instead of like paying attention to the moments where she could be there, she's like, but I wasn't there on Thursday. She, you know, was really hard on herself about it. But fixation doesn't allow for growth. It doesn't leave margin for joy either. A moment of beauty, a glimpse of humor, of joy, of unexpected connection. That is where I want my soul to live. So she's like, I need to find time in the space between, not in set moments. And I'm like, for the love of God, spend time with your kids. This feels crazy to be like once a week. I was trying to spend time with one of five. I don't know, man. I saw them at dinner. We passed each other in the hallway. The moments, the moments that matter. A sideways glance when they say, hey, will you help me with my homework? And I say, what the fuck was your name again? As I should have given them all the same name. The word intention can feel a little loaded, maybe even a little heavy. I have to say something. I've never dreaded anything more in my life. I can't add a new word. I feel like we should take a break, but I also think if we take a break, we can never start again. And I feel like we're in the middle of the ocean and the only way out is through. But I also feel like we're in the middle of the ocean where it's like we could die peacefully or we could fight for our lives and die three inches from where we started. We're just up against the tide and we're so weak. We're so weak. Live for the now, but not the outcome. Just the now. This chapter, I remember liking... We do, you don't know anything. Yes, I remember. <laughs> you were in the middle of like a high fever. Because I too am obsessed with outcomes and I have a hard time focusing on moments because I think of like what I thought that moment was supposed to be instead of what it is. And I don't have fun because I think of what I was supposed to think. I guess I'm just really distracted now by feeling like this book made me delirious with fever. And now I'm thinking about that scene in Little House on the Prairie where the fever made that one girl blind. And I'm literally scared this book is going to blind me. <laughs> can I read her definition of intention? Totally. I have to do some redefining of the word. Intention can come across as a way to wield control. I've been down that path before and I know it only leads to more feelings of failure. So these days I'm looking at intention a little more freely. I'm being careful not to chain expectations to the things I want to be intentional about. For this, I'm coupling intent with delight. I want to set out with intentions that feel good and true when it comes to the way I pursue Chip and our kids and how I approach our work at Magnolia. But now I want to make room for unexpected surprises within the plans I make. The thing is, I know that this is true for somebody. These are not my problems. I am not a perfectionist. If intention is leaving room for surprises and not planning, oh boy, am I intentional? Do you know what I mean? I do. Then she talks about living for the moments. Didn't we already talk about the moments when she picked that flower? Yeah. Okay. Those are different moments. So that was a flower. This is an intention moment. 
<laughs> so intentionality, because this I trust is how we look back on our days, our weeks, our years, even our lives to say, that's the story I meant to tell. So she's being intentional about being present. She's being intentional about telling the story she has intended to tell by not deciding the outcome in advance. Okay. I want to reiterate, I don't think this is wrong. I just don't think the way she says it is helpful because ironically, this book lacks any genuine human connection. Yes. And because of that, you feel a wash in just feel good vibey words and it feels it almost deranged. feels like she like control f'd any stories out yeah like i feel like she wrote a story with stories and then she was like okay now i need an editor to go through and take all of those stories and remove anything that could tie them back to me this feels like the worst book report in the world like a seventh grade book report that thinks it sounds really smart and it's like to kill a mockingbird is about the stories we tell ourselves the stories of our history which are no longer in our history and must always remain in our past because they are our present if you are intentional about finding the moments of the stories, then you will be building a bridge to a better future. And you'd hand it in and think you were so smart and they'd be like, this is the worst fucking essay I've ever read. Like, do you know what I mean? It's so not about anything. So this next chapter is called Healthy Things Grow. And she talks about the place where she feels most comfortable and productive, a place where you return to yourself every time you're there. For her, it is the laundry room. She is the quirkiest gal you fucking know, man. She feels so comfortable in the laundry room and she's able to sit there and write. Okay, here's something concrete. She talks about the difference between the word seen and known. This I actually liked too. Because she's like, I feel very seen. And the more you are seen, the more pressures you might feel that like the more eyeballs on you, the more you have to be perfect. The more people think that you are known, but you're not known. This is really a chapter about fame, but she won't call it that because everything that she writes has to be perfectly digestible by literally any human being that's ever existed on the planet. So if like somebody from 1708 got their hands on this book, they'd have to be able to relate to it too. So she won't just say, as I've gotten more famous, I have to release this idea of being the person people think that I am and realize that there's only a few people in my life who know me and it's more important to be known by your friends and family than it is to be seen by many. I guess this is actually like a grand piece of art about being seen and not known. Yeah. Like we are seeing her on every page, but we haven't known a single thing about her. In college, I majored in broadcast journalism with the plan of being a news anchor. It's so funny. I feel like her ghostwriter sat her down and she's like, okay, what are you willing to talk about? Like things that happen to your kids? No. Okay. Things that have happened in your marriage? Okay. No. Things that have happened in your career? No. They're like, uh, did you go to college? And she's like, yes. They're like, did you major anything? Will you talk about struggles? No. Can we talk about your major? Fine. They're like, okay, armed with one fact that she was a broadcast journalism major. We will write a book. She was a broadcast journalism major who married Chip Gaines, had four kids and then one kid and then opened a store. And had a TV show. So anyway, she talks about like she thought being a news anchor meant everybody else gave you all the info and the news and all you had to do was read it so that you could be seen by many. I guess she's always wanted to be famous. That's what I'm getting here. Yeah. She says, I've lived differently. I've lived for being seen and I've aimed to please. For a while, it felt like every part of me was in pursuit of approval, first from my parents, then my peers, and eventually anyone who could see me. This is so funny the way she can't just call herself famous because that'd be unlikable. When I was a little girl, it looked like making myself small, like hiding, like showing only certain cards. As I got older, it became more polished version of these things, still showing up as whoever people wanted me to be. Only now it looked like being responsible, timely, organized, in a word, perfect. She's like, but I was being seen, but nobody really knew me, and it made me very anxious, and it made me very isolated. She realizes that being a news anchor is not for her. She tends to be a rule follower, so when her internship ended and she realized she didn't want to be a news anchor, she went home to work for her dad. But then she met Chip, and Chip did things the non-traditional way. What way? We don't know. We'll never know. But Chip brought her out of her comfort zone. I was so sure there was a right way to grow that I nearly neglected my dream of opening up Magnolia that had been bubbling inside of me. 
She also talks about like when people think they know you, but they only see you when you grow and change, they'll see that as a betrayal. And this I actually wish that she had talked about because I have talked about that a lot as like a struggle of coming from like a very specific town. I think that people, when you change from who they think you were supposed to be, like doing comedy when I was known as the quiet girl, fucked with people. In moments when I felt like this, like people who have seen me one way don't want me to grow, but rather want me to stay the person they think they know. I'm not offended. Most of me believes this sort of reaction isn't on purpose. I actually think the majority of us can't help but consider the sum of someone based on our relationship to them. It's easy to put people in a box of one or two things when we think they're supposed to be if that's all we've known. If they begin to evolve, that picture we have in our minds of who they are gets distorted. Change can make people uncomfortable. I actually think she had a real story to tell, and I wish we had read that story. I wish we had read the story she had written down as opposed to the book about the story. She actually does give a specific about the time that she subverted expectations and grew into someone that people didn't expect her to be. Some moments have made me wonder how many people might still see me as that 35-year-old mother of four who covers interiors in shiplap and white paint. Only now I'm 44, I have five kids, and even though I love shiplap, and I will always enjoy the opportunity to highlight this very cool kind of history in someone's home, it's not how I would define my style, because that's always evolving. I had a choice. I could either continue using shiplap in every project and lean into how people were beginning to see and define me as a designer, or I could stretch myself in new ways. And she stepped out of her fucking comfort zone and started designing houses that weren't all shiplap. Ugh, I hate to see it, but I respect her journey. (laughs) I've climbed mountains to meet a world of expectations. I've run through valleys to earn the approval of people I can't even name. But it's led me here, working my way through a second chance, giving my soul a shot at the real thing. What expectations are you living for? Think about which ones have you climbing and running and always pushing. Even with all of that hustling, all that reaching, does it ever feel like you still haven't found what you're looking for? What might happen if our reach bent inward? What if we based our lives on only what we found there? The passions, the loves, the quirks and curiosities that begin within. See, this is like genuine. And I think Joanna actually has a story to tell that people would relate to and could be helpful. And if she's not willing to tell that story, I wish she wouldn't write it all. Me too. Because I like her on that show. She can either be perfect or she can be vulnerable, but she can't do this thing where she's being perfect at being vulnerable, which means she's not vulnerable at all because she has to remain perfect. We can let the idea of who we've been stunt our growth. I think that that is very true. And I like talking about that concept because I don't think people talk about it a lot. But she won't talk about it for real. And that's fucking annoying. A line that she had earlier that I actually do like is she talks about how life, she looks at it in the highlight reels of the highs and the lows. But actually, she wants to be able to see it more as the sum of all the parts, the good and the bad, and the way that they work together to make you who you are. And she says, I doubt we'll ever feel truly known if we're not willing to fight for the parts of us that aren't always so easily seen. If we're not honest about the fullness of who we believe we are. Because to me, being seen as fleeting, I think it's the path to living for false expectations, the path to becoming fixed, to hiding in halfness, the path to waking up one day and realizing the desk you're showing up to isn't the one intended for you. I wish I cared about what she was saying more by her being real. Me too. And she says a lot of times we don't even know ourselves. So that's the hard part. And you have to write down your story to know yourself and then not share it with fucking anyone because then you'll die. Yeah, we're going to run through these next few chapters just because we've said everything. And I can't imagine how burnt out you guys must be. I'm burnt out. So this one is called Untether, and it's about how we've all dropped anchor in places, a city, a perspective, a belief, a lie that we mistook as truth. And I don't know how the anchor is different from the roots from before. I performed my way into fitting in. I learned to bury any glaring difference between myself and others. I only showed the cards people wanted or expected. I like held on to this idea of perfectionism that I thought people wanted from me, but I've untethered myself from who I thought I had to be. And she says, like, what in your life, politics, religion, beliefs are you tethered to? And she says, I was somebody 
who just assumed the way I was showed to do something was the only way to do it. I never assumed I could find a second way that worked better for me. She also says, I always thought God was judging me for every thought I had. So I had to be perfect all the time, which I think is like a little bit of maybe religious trauma that she's not ever going to be willing to look at. Totally. She's like, it's okay to see that maybe the one first way you were taught to do something isn't the only way or even the best way. Or maybe there is no best way. Maybe there's a million ways to do everything and you just have to find what works for you. She says sometimes you have to release anchors in order to grow and move forward. But God is her deepest anchor. And that's a good one. I like this line. I am worthy without performing. That was one of her mantras. And I think that is good. That's a good mantra. Oh, this is where she does the thing about opinions. For me, these past few years, it felt a bit like a maze trying to navigate my way through where I stand on important issues, how much I should advocate for my opinions, what I should say and shouldn't say, who and what I should support. Though opinion is the currency of our culture, the best thing we can offer is a listening ear. Maybe we shouldn't all have opinions. Then you can say, well, I've never heard it said like that. Which is funny because I don't disagree. Like I do think listening could be helpful, helpful generally. But I feel like the way that she's like, I just don't think just because I have a TV show, I have to tell you how I feel about gays. (laughs) I don't, maybe I listen to how you feel about gays. And I think later, secretly, my thoughts. (laughs) So then she has this thing about how she's trying to learn new stuff. And she goes, there is beauty discovery and yes, even lightness and unexpected learning. And while curiosity is not something that comes naturally to me, but is a mindset I have to intentionally pursue, I do believe it is one of the best tools we have to sharpen and grow who we are. So learning new things is scary. It's this kind of unraveling that steadies you. Even amid the sea, the waves, and the water, you're venturing into the deep with every itch of quiet courage that's setting you free. So one day, when you hear that gentle whisper untether, you find yourself brave enough to. (laughs) I just blacked out. (laughs) Okay, this is actually the craziest chapter. Chapter nine. Piece by piece. So this is like 17 mixed metaphors that made no sense. First, we get this insane reveal from her that She does some things against the rules. She reads magazines and books back to front. She always reads the last chapter of the book because she doesn't like to not know how things end. Right. That's crazy. Yes. Then she reveals that when she was a cheerleader, she like busted two discs in her back because her sister flopped on her head. And she's had back problems ever since. And she's just kind of accepted that a few times a year she's just laid up with back pain. And one of those times she was looking at the puzzle her kids were working on and she's like, how can they like this puzzle? We can already see what it looks like. The picture's right there. Who would want to do something that's hard and takes time when we're already at the finish line? And then she learns about the joy of the puzzle. And she's like, why do they start in the middle? The core. And then her doctor says, you need core strength. And she goes, core strength? And then she thinks about how her family is the core of her life. And maybe sometimes, I actually don't remember how it all came together. She like quit the show because like the core wasn't finished and she's been doing more sit-ups and your life is like a puzzle and that you have to untether yourself. Like there's pieces of the puzzle and they don't all serve you. Okay, so we were trying to talk about this chapter earlier and we did come to the conclusion if you had done a fuck ton of shrooms, not a regular amount of shrooms, like like the kind where you have to leave a fish concert and you accidentally stumble into a church and you hear a sermon about puzzles, And then you stumble home still high off your ass and you try to explain to your friend what they were saying about puzzles. So instead of relaying any sort of like already kind of incoherent message, you're rambling about like the puzzles and the core and your back and the wall and your kids. Your life, your family is the piece of the puzzle and the middle of the puzzle is your purpose and your core is the family and we're all puzzles. 
Purpose means different things to me than it means to you. And you have to be at the end, but the middle, and sometimes the pieces don't fit, and you have to find a new piece. And there's a slowness. You have to look at the piece, and then you look at the other piece, and you say, is this two pieces? And sometimes you work on the edges, and the edges are your friends. You were a cheerleader in high school, okay? So your back, your back is your intention. <laughs> okay, I found a quote. When you live for the endings, the middle is a nuisance. It makes us wait. It makes us be patient. Sometimes it requires that we try and fail and try again. When you live for resolutions, the in-between can feel like it might break you. Waiting to give someone your final answer, waiting to hear back. You see, it was around this same time that I began taking note of anchors I was tethered to. So she didn't like working out to be healthy. She liked working out for a goal, like getting really hot for tomorrow. But the idea of just like working out generally to be overall healthy in like a measured way to her is like doing a puzzle because there's no goal. Like how do you do these things when there's no obvious endpoint and the journey is the destination and living a healthy life is the journey. And they were obsessed with growing their career, but their family was the core of her stomach. So they took a break from Fixer Upper for the core, but then they got the opportunity for the network, which was Pieces. So then her doctor said, just rebuild where you can. And that permission changed everything because she could just rebuild one muscle at a time. And that, if you think about it, is kind of like a puzzle, how you work on one section of the puzzle. And if you think about life, your life is kind of like, <laughs> I'm not joking anymore. Your life is like a puzzle in that the end is the destination. I don't think that this is a perfect metaphor because like the destination is death, but like at any one course, it's not a perfect metaphor. <laughs> but it, so her idea is kind of like you can work on different things at a time and rebuild the parts where you can. So like right now she had to work on her family, which seems boring, like the core compared to her career, which was the edges. It's kind of like that garden. Do you remember? <laughs> Bear with me here. But as I've been thinking this through, this is a quote. I've actually tried to look at my life like a puzzle, but not one I'm rushing to fill because I'm still a work in progress and the picture of my story isn't finished yet. It's also because working on the core, if to fill the puzzle, you have to spend time with your family, which she won't do. I have found it helpful, though, to get literal about the real estate I'm giving each piece of my life. If you're a visual learner like me, maybe you've already started to do the same. I see it like this. Each of our lives is made up of a bunch of pieces that fit together to make us who we are. Okay, so the thing is, her life puzzle is ever changing, which I feel like is tricky. Because that's not what puzzles do. Yeah, but so like at any given time, your life is a puzzle and all the pieces are the parts of your life that fill it. And there are a number of emotions you might feel when you open your box and pour out its pieces. Excited, overwhelmed, hopeful. Start putting a name to the pieces. Family, children, friendship, insecurities, work. Maybe you, like me, will still see a few pieces you've been working to release. You might uncover that still carries a lot of pain. And I don't want you to remove those completely, just push them to the side. This isn't meant to belittle what you've been through. You guys, I'm reading it directly and I don't get it. We have to move on. We have to move on. Basically, they launch a network because now they can. And that's an unexpected piece of our lives. Yeah. Kind of like a puzzle. Totally. When you get a puzzle, you don't always expect how many pieces there's going to be because it never actually says the number on the box. I'm being reminded daily that the picture we're building is always changing so long as we are. The life you are building is too. And the pieces you are holding are beautiful. Whether you let one go, whether you hold one tight, whether you eventually push some to the side, each one is a glimpse of a picture in progress. The story of how we become. We could try to find our ending. We could leave the pieces untouched. Or we can trust that among them lies a thousand more beginnings. I think the puzzle was a misguided metaphor. I don't think you can like leave out pieces of the puzzle or change them. That's not how puzzles work. I'm physically exhausted. Yeah, I don't know. It feels very like predestined, the puzzle thing. And I don't actually think that's what she's getting at. 
Me either. Okay, this last chapter is Have a Fun. It's about how when she was little, she loved roller skating. But then as she got older, she was like so busy with work and life that she forgot about fun. But then she decided to get roller skates again as an adult. And it was actually so fun. She has this really sad line about how she like thought she just didn't have the DNA makeup for being somebody who could feel joy or do something fun. But then she got those rollerblades and she's like, I can do it. I can show people that I can have fun. The best part was at first I could tell there were some surprised faces in the room. People who thought I was far too serious to pull something like that. The something she pulled was wearing rollerblades. Yet it was also the truest, deepest, most sacred part of who I was that showed up that day. And every time I choose fun over fear, play over performance, vulnerability over perfection, it feels like a homecoming. Like I'm returning to myself. I mean, this part did kind of break my heart. I think it was one of those chapters that was sadder than she knew it was. Oh, yeah. There's something so fucking sad about her being like, I didn't know that I could ever have fun again. But it turns out that little girl in me who loved rollerblading, she still exists. And I'm trying to find who she was because I've made myself this like perfectionist. And people are so fucking shocked. And my mom always says, have a fun. And I'm doing it. I can have a fun. I was just like, that's so sad. It's so sad. That's so sad that you thought you genetically didn't have it in you to be joyful. I also feel like one of the sadder things about it is that she remembers that rollerblading was fun as a kid. And so the only thing she can think to do as an adult that is also fun. Like she has not reclaimed any fun. She's revisiting fun. Oh, my God. We're on the last chapter. I was so happy to get to the end of this book that I didn't even realize what the last chapter is called. Plagiarism. It's called Turning the Page. Maybe this chapter is going to change my fucking life because you guys know that the Matthew McConaughey episode, Turn the Page, I literally quit my job. So this is about, I actually think nothing. I skimmed it because I was so burnt out. She wrote this book in the order you read it. I believe she wrote this book in one night. Right there, in reliving of the memories I'd pushed aside, in the unfolding of moments I'd forgotten, I found more of my life than I ever thought I could capture. Really? Be fucking for real. (laughs) This book ended up revealing a reality I've always run from. The truth spilled out onto every page. My story will never be as I expect it. Not polished, not perfect, not simple. No one's is. Instead, I will always feel torn between what was or what is or what could be. I will forever exist in the space between. Life has always been a chaotic collection of pieces, dreams, wins, insecurities, hurts, profound gratitude. In writing down my story, I've gleaned more of who I'm aiming to be, but more of who I already am, unabridged. Oh my God, sorry. I'm looking for this one quote that I have to share with you guys that we'll end on, but I found this other quote. I am playful and I have many memories that prove it. The trick is remembering I am more than my instincts sometimes show. I think also about all the years I spent believing I wasn't brave enough to be vulnerable. Jesus. So she talks about like the moments in your life that changed who you see yourself as. She says as she grew up, she was always seen as the reliable one, the solid oak. And that really made her into this funless person she's become. And she says, perhaps your moment isn't rooted in your childhood. And maybe it's not perfectionism. Maybe it's an obsession with your image or with proving yourself, a burden your parents laid on you. So those I would say are kind of all the same to be like, maybe you're not obsessed with being perfect. Maybe you're obsessed with looking perfect or obsessed with performing perfectly. (laughs) Like these to me are all the same. And then she goes, maybe it's a distraction with addiction. What? The way that she tried to be like, maybe your problem isn't that you're so perfect. Maybe you're distracted by heroin. (laughs) Excuse me, Jojo. Okay. So that's the last thing. I kind of can't talk about this anymore. We have to like end it there. Imagine if the stories we tell brought us back to our truest selves. Back to one another. Imagine if we started right now, in the midst of one ending, a new beginning. With pencils sharp and breaths light, we turn to a crisp page. It's time. It's your turn. What beautiful story is yours to tell? I, like, feel... Exhausted. 
and aggressive. <laughs> I want to bite her. <laughs> I want to eat a pigeon. I can't explain it, but I want to go out on the road and grab one from the air and rip his little head off with my teeth. You and Bug are so similar. <laughs> That's my story and I'm sticking to it. You guys... On the Patreon this week, we are going to get into a deep dive of Chip and Joanna Gaines. We've heard some tea on them, some drama. What isn't on that Wikipedia page? What won't they show you? How fertile was this soil? Zero. This was motherfucking silt, baby. And then would you like to have a pump teeny with her or whatever? A worm teeny? Not really. I feel like this book annoyed me too much. I don't even know how I'd look her in her fucking face. I would love to have a cup of tea with her. You know what I would love? I would love like perfectly spiced cider on the couch in her farmhouse up against the fire on a crisp November day. She wouldn't take a sip because she doesn't drink cider, I bet. But I would love to be near her. I think I'm madder at Joanna Gaines than I am at Josh Peck. I like am so upset with this book. I just feel sad. I feel a profound sadness for her that I think she didn't know. Okay, here's my struggle. Is I feel so sad for her because I think this book was way more revealing than she intended it to be. It was like the J-Lo effect where you're like, oh, you think you came off perfect and your perfection makes me so sad for your life but also her life is perfect like she has a network she has those five kids she has that husband look at the garden story like her stories on instagram she has a highlight called garden there's this one little story of her little baby crew that she loves so much putting tulips from her garden in his pocket and i was like well you do have a perfect life so you don't need my fucking pity or sympathy you have my empathy though <laughs> I love you guys. And who do we love the most? We love our five-star reviewing wormies. You guys get me through the day. Thank you. It's me, Bailey G. You are an absolute G and I adore you. Thank you, Lolo Dorito. You are my favorite flavor of Dorito. I am so happy to have the dust of your memory on my fingertips. Thank you, Evan Hunt. I have been hunting for the perfect review and this might just be it. Yes, that Jeff, that Jeff, that Jeff came here to give us five stars. Gosh, bless you. Ayana8972. Ayana, thank you a hundred times if I could. Twisty Christy, you have my stomach in knots because I'm so friggin' grateful to you. That is all this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you to the friggin' moon and back and then back to the moon and then I stay on the moon because I like it there. See you next week.